Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. My name is Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about SOPs, or Standard Operating Procedures, documenting a process flow, and when to chill the F out. And that is a little life lesson. And it all fits together. These are actually lessons that I personally learned through beer and brewing beer. And I will actually pop open a beer right now that is the afternoon kind of when I'm recording this. I mean, I work for myself. I can drink any time of day I want to. That's just kind of the, the fact the fact of the matter here. So I'm pouring it. And let me tell you about it. This is a Jolly Pumpkin Artisan Ale. Jolly Pumpkin is fantastic. I actually met the brewer, the founder, way back. I want to say it was like 2007 or 2008 at the Great American Beer Festival. His name is Ron Jeffries. I think he's still running the show over there. And this particular beer is called Blanca or Blanca. I think Blanca. We'll go with that. It's a farmhouse wit beer. And it's an ale brewed with orange peel and coriander. It's oak-aged and can-conditioned. And number one, the beers are fantastic. They're out of Traverse City, I believe. I've actually been to the brewery up there in Traverse City, which is fantastic if you ever get a chance to go by there and have some of the beers. The other part is the artwork on the labels looks super cool. I really enjoy uh, the artwork there. And, you know, Ron Jeffries is a great brewer. I actually have um, a book that he, he didn't write the whole thing, but he was featured in the book. I think it was called Farmhouse Ales. And I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the uh, label here. It's actually out of Dexter, Michigan, but they do have a tap room in Traverse City, which is where it went by. Anyway, Jelly Pumpkin's pretty good. If you can get it in your neck of the woods, check it out. Okay. So I'm going to hop over and quickly thank our sponsor, and that is Otis Global. The featured domain for today is artisanfarmers.org. This domain is 16 years old. There's 105 unique referring domains, and I think this would be perfect for one of those informational websites where you're pretty much never going to run out of keywords. There are so many questions around, uh, you know, plants and farming and, you know, doing all this stuff at home where quickly you're like, ah, I want to look up, you know, what kind of plants I should uh, plant near each other in my vegetable garden and so on. So there's, there's tons of informational topics. And if you were, I would suggest you be into the topic area of farming or gardening or doing things on your own and you could really fill it up. The cool part is you can go, you know, deeper and actually look at the larger operation uh, type farms and maybe more on the agricultural level and that sort of equipment and services associated with that. So you can go kind of the affiliate route, but I think there's probably some really low hanging fruit for the informational angle. So I would check that out for sure. And there are some pretty awesome domains from How Stuff Works, Huffington Post, Wikipedia, the, the Washingtonian, and SF-ist. It's a hard one to say. 
uh, and many, many others as I'm looking through, there's just like tons of, you know, very well-known domains where you got a link coming from it. And as I said, 16 years old, a lot of age on this baby and the domain rating is 27. The domain authority is 32 and it's still indexed in Google. So you can get $100 if you use my affiliate link for Otis. And they're, of course, the source for premium age domains. And if you join using my affiliate link, you get that $100 in your account. And if you buy something, I might earn a commission. So I'm going to have a quick sip here and I'll be right back. And I'll tell you about this whole brewing situation that I got myself into. Quick note on the Jolly Pumpkin beers, they are a little bit tart. So it's kind of a bit of a sour beer, but it's not, it's not sort of like a, the sour beer that you typically might get out at a, you know, a brewery. This one is a little bit different, but it's a little tart. So just drinker beware. Wanted to let you know, very good beers, but if you don't like sour beers at all, then you may want to look elsewhere. If you're passing through Michigan and you're able to go by one of the tap rooms, I'm sure you can get a sample in the place we went to in Traverse City. They had good food, so it was really nice to sit and see the water in the distance. Okay, let's get to the point here. And number one, standard operating procedures, and we'll just call them SOPs from this point forward, are, you know, maybe it seems like you don't need to document things out. And maybe it doesn't really matter because you're just working on this website yourself. Or maybe you just have like one or two people helping out. But these standard operating procedures are really a great way to look at your full process. And if you are able to expand in the future and have a few people on your team, the SOPs are a great way to you know, teach someone how to do something and ensure that if someone else picks up the job, they should be doing it in the same way, the way that is documented in the SOPs. And I'm, I looked this up. I just wanted to Google real quick, just a, a kind of a academic definition of standard operating procedures. They provide the policies, processes, and standards needed for the organization to succeed. So maybe a little BS there at the end, but the benefits of SOPs are reducing errors, increasing efficiencies and profitability, creating a safe work environment and producing guidelines for how to resolve issues and overcome obstacles. So you may still be thinking, well, that sounds like some bullshit from a corporate mission statement or something like that, which it actually does. But let me paint a quick picture in the website scenario. Let's say your website goes down and you're like, oh shit, I don't know what has happened. The site is not loading. And what do you do? What do you do after that? So maybe you check out your hosting, right? See if there's a, a known outage, maybe a rack of servers failed and a bunch of websites are down and you could find that out from your hosting company. Maybe the hosting company doesn't know anything's wrong and they check out your specific 
server and they check out your specific site and then they help you troubleshoot from there. And maybe they say, oh yeah, we see that there's like one plugin that's messed up. Or maybe they see, hey, there's a process that's that's hung, but we don't know what it is. We don't know if it's a plugin or anything else that's going on, but we see the whole servers up and it's just your machine. So they reboot your, uh, your processor, your virtual server or whatever you got rolling there. And then you're able to load the site, but you can see there's still some trouble and eventually you figure out it's a plugin that auto updated and there's something messed up in the code. There's a bug in there and you need to disable that plugin. So what I just described was a process that you would go through and you would kind of have to just like look at all these decision points, go to the people that can help you, like your hosting company and the support, and then continue to look for whatever the problem is. It would be really nice if you were able to just have it documented where you can go down a flow chart, you can go through kind of a decision matrix situation where you check to see if the host, the hosting company knows there's a, an issue with a set of servers. And there's like a few areas you can hit decision points. And if it's yes, you go in one other route. And if it's no, then you take some other path and you're able to troubleshoot and figure out what the issue is to bring your site back up. Now, as I say it out loud, I was like, oh, what would I do if my site went down? So I kind of talked through it here, made up a couple scenarios, but there's there's a likelihood that that's not going to happen too often. So each time that my site goes down, I have to like refigure out all this shit again and chase down different paths. Well, wouldn't it be nice if I had just a flow chart in maybe a Google folder and there's maybe a handful of scenarios. Some of them are like disaster recovery type scenarios. Some of them are maybe marketing scenarios that happen and, you know, fill in the blank, right? There's a ton of other stuff that you might work on. Maybe it's uh, improving and editing existing content and you have a, you know, kind of a checklist, a process flow, a set of SOPs, right? And you don't have to refigure out all these different decision points. Now, it doesn't mean you can't go back and evaluate and make sure that your SOPs are up to date and accurate. Things change. So you may have to go and, and update them from time to time. But basically, if you mostly have figured out how to do a process, it's good to document it because then if you forget because you're getting older or you're drinking a beer while you're doing whatever it is you're doing, then you're able to just look at the process flow or your SOPs and then you're in good shape. You don't have to like reinvent the wheel every time your server goes down. Further, if you hire an operations person so you don't have to fuck around with all the details anymore, then you can show them all these SOPs and say, hey, we, you know, we got most of these scenarios covered out there. Sometimes weird stuff happens and you're going to have to figure it out again. Or you are, you're going to have to figure it out the first time. Maybe you have to go through it a couple times because if it's a rare event that happens, you won't get much experience with it. You'll have to go through it a couple times. But you could think through you know, different scenarios that can happen. So that is kind of the value of 
documenting a process and SOPs. Now, one cool thing that I learned from my corporate job, I almost couldn't say that, but I did learn some things. It was showing up on a project. And I, I was you know pretty young. I was like 23, 24, right out of school. I didn't know anything, right? And I, I would be assigned to a project. I was some sort of a business analyst requirements person kind of, you know, on, on the business side. So I would be assigned to a project and I would like interview people that were roughly my parents' age, right? So they're, they're, you know, in their forties or fifties, they have, you know, 20, 30 years experience doing the thing that they're doing. And I don't know anything. And I am, assigned to ask questions and help them figure out how to make the process more efficient or whatever. It turns out you end up like laying off half the people in the warehouse or some kind of nonsense because you're, uh, you're optimizing the process flow and eliminating jobs. Essentially you're making it more efficient in air quotes, but that's what really happens. Anyway, I learned how to document a process you know, talk to someone who does the process, walk through it, write it out, figure out decision points, essentially document a process. And then you can turn those into SOPs and you get all the benefits that I mentioned before and probably a bunch of others that I didn't even talk about. But the fact is, if you go through the you know somewhat painful process of writing out a process flow. And you could use software for this if you want. I really like to get just like a Sharpie or um, a pen and like a blank piece of paper or two and just sketch things out. You know, there's a lot less pressure um, or it feels like there's less pressure if you're just like sketching things out. It's clearly a draft. No one else is going to see it. I'm going to probably throw it away after I you know, copy it over to another spot. But if you're using software, you may feel like it's a little more permanent. You're like, oh, when I want to do a really good job. But essentially just writing out a process really helps you clarify things in your mind. And when you write it out, you have to um, kind of analyze it. And then, you know, you can shuffle things around. Maybe you can identify like holes in your process. So let's bring it around to brewing and beer. Basically, I've, I've brewed beer for about 15 years, got into it pretty heavily. I started entering competitions, really enjoyed that. It was uh, part of the sort of culture in the Atlanta area. I mean, it's, it's all over, but in the brew club that I was in and the, just the people I was hanging out with, we were like entering competitions and I became a beer judge and started grading some of the exams for other beer judges and taught a couple beer judging classes in Bozeman when I moved there. And I haven't brewed as much probably in the last five to honestly five to seven years or so. I just haven't brewed as much. Part of that was like moving away from Atlanta and to Montana, one hurdle, which actually seems a little funny to say it, but it's so cold in the winter in Montana that it's a little challenging to brew in the winter. 
Now, that said, I didn't brew that much in the summer either, but I'm still brewed a little bit. Now, we moved to Colorado. The weather is much uh, warmer, so you can brew in the winter if you want to. And about a year ago, in sort of the middle of 2021, I was like, all right, I'm going to get back into brewing, which I typically do like once a year. I'm like, all right, I'm going to get back into brewing. I need to get into the routine and I'll brew a batch and it'll turn out good. I kind of go through a little learning process because I've forgotten the process that I go through. All the equipment is kind of in different places. So I have to kind of run around and think a little bit more about brewing a batch of beer. And then I will brew like probably a week or two later, knowing that if I get into the routine, it'll be like easier for me to brew each week, do it a little bit faster. It's not as mentally taxing. And I'll brew two batches and then basically get busy and fall off again. So I've done that, (laughs) I think like the last four or five years, I'll brew like two batches of beer within a three week period. And then I'll forget and not brew again for about a year. So like clockwork, I did that again this year. In early June, I picked up the brew kettle, got the burner fired up, and I brewed uh, actually a big batch. I did 10 gallons this time, which is two kegs worth, at least in my kegerator system. So I brewed um, a batch, uh, kind of a pale ale, basically. And then a few days later, I brewed another 10 gallons, this time Belgians. So in both cases are going to end up being like about 5%, 5.2 or so, and fairly light. They're both going to be blonde in color. They're mostly base malts for the people that know brewing. And my buddy, Matt, which a lot of you guys know him from Brew Cabin in Money Lab, he has like a, a decent amount of ingredients. So I just went over and got some of his old stuff that he was trying to get rid of. And it'll, it'll be great beer, great for the summer. Like I said, light, easy drinking. They're going to be, you know, pretty dry and uh, thirst quenching. So they're going to be, they're going to be good. They're fermenting. Everything's turning out great. So I had a couple situations that went down. So number one, like I mentioned before, and I think you're seeing how this is all parallel. So whenever I start brewing again after a long hiatus, I don't remember the process as much. And at this point in time, I don't have SOPs for my brew system. And one thing that, that popped up is I changed a few components in my system. So the analogy would be like if you put a new if you put a new SEO plugin on your website, you know it works. Other people use that SEO plugin that you just installed, but you're gonna have to configure a couple things. You may have to test it out on a couple posts to understand how to use it. And then you may have to make some sort of global changes. And one thing that I changed in my system was this number one, the size of what I was brewing. So instead of like a, basically a six gallon batch, I'm doing like a 12 or 13 gallon batch. So I have another kettle that'll fit that in there, but I'm like doubling whatever it is that I'm boiling here. So it's going to take longer to boil and it's going to take longer to chill. And 
there's a couple other things that are just going to take longer because you're dealing with more material. So, you know, just with that, it's going to change the time frames of how long it takes to boil, how long it takes to chill, and just the whole day, the whole day of brewing. And brewing ends up taking a you know, few hours, um, start to finish, takes a little while to clean, you got to put up the equipment and all that stuff. So, basically, I was doing more volume. The other part is I needed a new piece of equipment to handle that. And I thought Matt had a 10-gallon cooler that we use for a mash ton. And the details of the brewing don't matter, but I know some people know about beer. So I will, or you've gone on like a brewery tour, so I'll mention the details. So I thought Matt had a 10-gallon cooler. Turns out it was only a 5-gallon cooler. It just looked bigger because there was more insulation compared to mine. And then when I when I looked a little closer, I was like, oh shit, this is only five gallons. So... I was like, no big deal. I saw a cooler perfect for this at the hardware store and it's marked down on clearance. I was like, I saw one on the shelf the other day. So I'm just going to go over this morning right away and get it to prepare to brew in a couple days. I was actually planning ahead. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go right now because I only had one more on the shelf. So I roll up to the hardware store. And this is, by the way, this is the part where I was thinking I need to chill the fuck out. Okay, so I go to the hardware store and there's not any of those coolers on the shelf. They have the five gallon, they have uh, other coolers, but they don't have the one I need. And I was like, oh shit, okay, I'm going to go ask them to see if there's any in stock somewhere in the store. And basically they were like, there might be on this one, one shelf, sometimes they show up over there. They didn't have it, sadly. So... I was like, ah, oh, shit. I'm going to have to go to another hardware store. I checked on my phone. I saw the other store in town had four of them in stock. 10 gallon, perfect. So I go over, I pick it up. That's uh, on the other side of town. It's a little more of a crowded store. And, uh, you know, I had to go over there, waste a little time, come on back. And then I put the faucet and the spigot and I, I put the brewing stuff that I need to on the cooler and then I fill it with water to see if it, if it leaks or not. I fill the mash tun with water to make sure everything is secure. Well, it turns out it wasn't. And I looked a little closer. I see that, you know, it's dripping some. And the plastic is just cut a little roughly. So a little bit of water is getting out. I'm like, God, fuck, you know, I'm like, oh man, it was going to be like really easy for me to get the 10 gallon cooler. Now I've had to run around. Now the one that I have is leaking. So I made a decision. I was like, I can't, I don't want to waste any more time on this. It appears to be leaking at a very, very slow rate. So I'm just going to put a little uh, container underneath to catch the water. And it turned out fine. So like, even when I was mashing, I just put a little container underneath and, you know, during the mash, maybe two ounces dripped out. I mean, it was hardly anything. It was a very slow drip. So not a huge deal. And I was like, this works well enough that I could just deal with it and I'll figure it out later. And the portion that I needed to chill out, which now that I'm 
saying, saying it out loud, I think I've done a pretty good job. So each step of the way from when I realized the cooler was the wrong size and then when I went to the hardware store to get the right cooler, they were out. And then I had to go to another store and that one leaked. I was losing my fucking mind. I was just like, why? Like, this is just, everything's going wrong. And the thing is, I'm brewing beer because I love it. I love beer. I love the process of brewing it. I liked what I was doing. And I was running into all, there was so much friction to just get this done. And I was like, like, am I not supposed to brew this batch of beer? Like, what the fuck is going on here? And I think I was, I was complaining towards my wife, not at her, but I was like, you know, I, like th- this is, everything's going wrong here. Like I, I am not sure, but now the new cooler that I have is leaking and you know, what, what is going on? I, like I, after I brew a batch of beer, I'm usually happy about it. It's like working out or going for a jog. Usually I feel better afterwards. Maybe it's the beer talking. I don't know, but I feel better afterwards. So I chilled out. Maybe I went for the, for a little walk or something like that, but I was like, you know what? It's going to be fine. Like I've hit some frustrating parts here and it shouldn't be that way. And you know, when I start brewing more, then it should be all right. Now, you know, one lesson that I learned and one thing that I actually had been doing a good job with, but I I failed this time is when I start brewing again, or I start back maybe working out after a long break, I, I make it as easy as possible. So when I start brewing again after a hiatus, usually I do sort of like the easiest recipe that I could do. I do a small batch. I don't have any big expectations. I don't double the batch like I was talking about. I certainly don't get new equipment that potentially can fail. And usually if I make it easy, then it turns out okay. And I have a little momentum and I'm encouraged to brew that next batch. So basically what it comes down to is that's what life is shit goes wrong all the time. There's so many factors outside of your control. Life is really just like dealing with the problems that come at you and then not spiraling out of control because the new cooler that you have is leaking. Just chill the fuck out. And, um, you know, do you need to get a new cooler? Like, you know, figure it out. Turns out, you know, jump ahead. I did the mash. It was fine. Even with the leak. And then, I you know, took apart the things that I added to the cooler, restored it back to its uh, like stock, um, you know, whatever, whatever it was before I added the spigot on there and the valve. And then I just exchanged it. I went back to the store, exchanged it, got one that had like a cleaner cut um, around the, the, um, the spigot for the cooler and it was good to go. I hooked it up. It didn't leak anymore. And I actually brewed another batch. I brewed a 10-gallon batch of the Belgian beer. So that that is one of the lessons. Now, one thing that I did before I started brewing was 
actually the process flow. So all the stuff that I'm talking about, I did this with the beer. And one thing that was pretty important, there's, there's two main areas here in the in the process flow that I listed out. One was about the time frames. So I know I need to mash for 60 to 90 minutes. I know I need to boil for one hour. And I know it takes a little while to chill the wort after I boil. So there's a couple pieces in there where I don't know how long it's going to take, like how long will it take to boil the water. That's always going to vary depending on the weather conditions, the temperature of the starting water, and maybe even the weather, right? So if it's a high pressure, low weather system, the high pressure might boost up the boiling temperature, for example. So it might take a little bit longer to boil. Anyway, there's a couple pieces in there. So I just mapped it out. I was like, hey, if I start the mash at 6 a.m., I started this early. So if I start the mash at 6 a.m., it'll be done at 7, and it's not a big deal if I don't get to it for another half hour. So that could be a good time for me to like walk Georgie during the mash. And then the boil, well... I think hopefully I'll be able to get it to boil in X amount of time. I estimated maybe like um, 45 minutes. You know, it's, it's quite a bit of wort that you got to boil. But anyway, I mapped all this out and I thought, hey, I should probably be able to finish this by 9.45. That's the target. And I actually hit pretty close. And after I brewed the batch of beer, right? All this was a guess because I don't know how long some of the pieces are going to take. But I was pretty close. And now after I've brewed, I actually have data. I know how long it took me to boil and I know how long it took me to chill. Now it will vary, but if I had to guess, I don't think it'll vary more than maybe like 10%. So it's not going to be exactly right, but it's pretty close and it's good enough for me to make a schedule from. So now if I brew a 10 gallon batch of beer, I know I could probably get pretty much everything done except cleaning in four hours. And another benefit is in that four hours, there's probably about two hours where you're just sitting there doing absolutely nothing. It may even be closer to three hours. Like there's not much going on. You literally can go, I mean, you got to stay close by, but you can kind of do something else. This could be useful if you are, you know, running through, maybe you do like offsite backups quarterly or something like that. And you want your operations manager that you just hired to do the same thing that you did before. Well, it's really great to let them know like, hey, these parts of the process take this amount of time and you can go do something else because it, it takes a little while for these files to upload and duplicate offsite or whatever. So another area might be around improving content. Maybe you have a lot of posts on your site. You need someone to go and add FAQs and update the subheadings based on a little keyword research. Well, maybe you could tell them that should take one hour per post. You add three FAQs and then you can Google and research the subheadings that you need to add in this way, you know, follow these SOPs and it should take you X amount of time. Super helpful. It sets expectations. If you're paying someone hourly, it helps them budget how much time it's going to take them to work on whatever it is. And you know 
that they're not BSing you, right? Because, you know, if they did 40 of them, they're not going to report 60 hours for that set of activities. So it can be a little bit of a pain in the butt, right? If you're doing all this on the, on the, like just as you go. But once you document it out, it's very helpful. You may actually identify an area that you can improve because you are writing it out. You have to, I mean, you have to focus and, and concentrate and really, you know, take a look at this stuff, but it can be really helpful. The other area, which may not be super, super helpful for the analogy here, but the other area that I wrote out and planned for the brew day was just my volumes of water. So I had to figure out how much to put in the mash, how much to add in for the sparge. And one thing, you know, when you add water to grains, the grains absorb a lot of water. So you have to take that into account too. So it's kind of important to know where I wanted to end up with, you know, roughly 11 and a half gallons of finished wort. There's always a little waste. And I wanted to get a certain amount of wort into my fermenters so that I would have the right amount whenever I put it into the kegs, which should be just under five gallons or so. So you have to start with the end in mind, back calculate. And I'm sure there's some analogy out there for um, working on a website, but for beer, for beer making, you got to know your volumes and get a measure, you know, measure amount ahead of time. That was one thing I did, you know, because I mapped all this out and I wanted to start the mash at 6 a.m. I got all the water ready ahead of time, put them in their proper vessels so that the water can start heating overnight. So when I wake up at 5.45, I could just wake up. The water's already hot. I could just throw the grains into the mash tun and we're good to go. And that is how we pulled together me talking about beer and make it about websites somehow. I was really proud of that. I hope, I hope it was somewhat helpful. I think so. I mean, SOPs are very important. Now, another reason why this was on my mind, when I do brew beer, I listen to beer podcasts, which that was the first kind of podcast that I listened to back in 2007. And some of these guys um, run their own breweries. And one thing that's really important, and I mentioned it in the sort of definition and some of the benefits of SOPs, SOPs are super important in a food production environment, which beer is, or other sort of industrial settings, production facilities, and that sort of thing. And a lot of that is around safety and making sure that you're you know, taking the right safety precautions ahead of time and you're using the equipment properly and so on and so forth. So it's really important to keep your employees safe. Now, again, probably with websites, it's not so much bodily harm or anything like that. But if someone is working on your website and maybe a developer needs to do a little work, sticking to some SOPs can be really important. Now, if you're just hiring the, the person for a one-off um, kind of development engagement, then SOPs maybe aren't relevant, but it sure would be nice if you hired someone that knew what the fuck they were doing. So they're not going to hose your, um, your website or maybe, you know, do things that are not best practices on your WordPress install. 
So, you know, one of the dangers of hiring freelance developers, especially for WordPress, is you can be a WordPress developer by watching a bunch of YouTube videos and just kind of figuring out a couple things on your own, but you may not have the best practices or really know what you're doing at all, and you can make some kind of silly mistakes. So, I don't know how to solve that problem other than, you know, make sure you're hiring someone who is competent and at the very least knows how to have an offsite backup before they start changing anything so that they could always revert back to what the website was before they started working on it. And that is actually why I'm comfortable, you know, editing my database and making some fairly dramatic changes and doing things that are maybe a little dangerous is because I know that I pull a backup before I make any changes and I could always revert back to whatever it was before I started messing around. So I think that is it for today. I'll give a plug for my other podcast. It's called Mile High Fi. It's about personal finance and financial independence. And I think if you're listening to this, you you should probably check out the financial independence uh, aspect of personal finance. A lot of us, I mean, if you're listening to this show, you're probably interested in just making sure you don't have to get a job again. You could work for yourself. You know that you can execute, you know, you can get stuff done. You just want to not have to get a job again. At least that, that is where I am. Maybe you're financially independent. Maybe that's a goal. Maybe it doesn't matter, but you just don't want to have to answer to a boss. And with the financial independence aspect taken care of, you can work on fun projects that you want to work on. Maybe not because you have to earn the money from it, but because it's fun and you like to you know, work on that kind of stuff. So anyway, Mile High Fi, I have a co-host. His name's Carl Jensen, and he's been in the financial independence retire early community for a long time. And I guess I've known him for about three years now. We've had the podcast for about a year at this point in time. And one cool thing is he retired five years ago. And like, literally, he, he quit his job as a software developer. And then like, he hasn't he hasn't gotten a job again. He, yeah, he works on a lot of home projects most of the time. But anyway, check that out. We'll put a link in the show notes. If you have questions or thoughts or any follow-ups about SOPs, documenting your process flow or other life lessons, you know, the other part of the title of this episode is chilling the F out lessons from beer and brewing. So anyway, if you have any Feedback, feedback at Doug.show. Would love to hear it. Thanks to everyone who has been sending emails my way. I appreciate it. You ask great questions. You give wonderful feedback. And, you know, I welcome it all. So feedback at Doug.show. We'll leave it at that. I got to finish this beer over here. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.